kids, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. It's Tuesday, June 13, 2017, and even though the summer solstice is technically about a week away, it's 92 degrees as we speak in New York City, so no matter what the calendar says, it's friggin' summer. We have a couple of real old-school summer songs for this episode, along with a super fresh, funky, dope, and excellent guest artist interview. But right now, we're going to let the music do the talk.
Hey, we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Those songs were Dancing in the Streets from Martha Reeves and the Vandellas from 1964 and Street Fighting Man from the Rolling Stones' Beggar's Banquet album in 1968. And for those of you who were not even a twinkle in someone's eye that year, 1968 was the summer in which many people thought the world might end before that year was done. Ask your aunties and your titi beahas about it. Seriously. But if you really want to know why, GTS, man. Google that shit on your own time. Because right now, it's our time. Every year when summer comes to New York City, I feel like I'm caught between those two songs of my childhood. Like I'm poised between wearing a fancy, fierce, funky, fresh sundress while twirling around a meadow. All right in the middle of Prospect Park, or throwing on my old MC boots from 1999 and heading out to kick some major culo like I was a Boricua Wonder Woman or something. I truly believe that one of the reasons why we, some of, some of we New York City natives are so, eh, to put it nicely, intense, is that we live with some of the most extreme weather on the planet. Every year, it's, it's a toss-up. It could be below zero in February or over 100 degrees in July. Or it could be below zero in December and over 100 degrees in May. Maybe it's the heat. Maybe it's just the humidity. Maybe it's the unmistakable aromas of Canal Street or Back Alley in Bushwick. Or maybe it's having to listen to that pendejo Mr. Softy song over and over and over again. But for every day, the heat waves rise off the pavement for blocks and threaten to strangle you with their stench. There's that one night when you're drinking a frosty adult beverage on someone's rooftop at sunset and you can't imagine living anywhere else. I remember riding in my uncle's old Volkswagen bus, coming home from Orchard Beach when I was a child, sand-covered, sunburnt, and half asleep listening to the radio. Yes, the radio, just like you're listening to now, only back then it was analog radio. Back then, FM was just beginning to get its groove on, but nearly everyone that I knew listened to WBLS for R&B and Soul, WMCA for the Mets games broadcasts, and 77 WABC Music Radio for the hits. And I mean hits from bands like, oh, The Temptations, Jefferson Airplane, Lou Reed, The Beatles, Aretha Franklin, Simon and Garfunkel, The Doors, The Delphonics, Steppenwolf, Stevie Wonder, The Fifth Dimension, and Martin Gaye, one after the other after the other. Because back then, there was no fragmentation of radio. People weren't really doing demographics, so there wasn't like one channel for you and one channel for me and one channel for your friend next door and one channel for your mother and one channel for your other brother. No, everybody listened to the same music all the time. And in a way, that was good because you were exposed to a lot of different music and you could, I guess, figure out which what you liked. But anyway, that's neither here or there. That's just the way it was back then and now is the way it is now. Now, when I was a teenager, summers in New York City meant going to Central Park to see Blondie, Bad Company, King Crimson, or the Ramones at a Dr. Pepper concert. 
on maybe a hit of black a hit of blotter maybe a little weed maybe just a lot of beer but jumping up and down on a rock falling off and climbing back on with hardly a scratch because we teenagers we was made of rubber oh and then there was that one summer mm, 20 years ago when i stood on the allen street median in front of what was once surf reality in total and complete shock after seeing one person pull an onion and the Butterfinger bar out of her toto and another getting an audience member to drink her pee. And I was wondering if I had the cojones to go back inside. And as I was pondering this, a car drove by, blasting Prodigy's fire starter. And I said, fuck it, I'm going back in. And thank God I did. Yeah, the calendar says summer doesn't officially begin until June 21st. But you know and I know that Memorial Day weekend was it. You know, that's the weekend the new tattoos come out and the clothes come off. The weekend the uppies begin their Hamptons crusade and the art stars take to whatever streets they've been dispersed to. When even the tofu eaters maybe will scarf down a Brooklyn banger, the lactose intolerant might dare a lick or two of Mr. Softy, and even the most fun challenge stick in the mud wants to get the fuck out and play like this summer song one of my favorites from mm, around the turn of the century this is the house that funk built groove amada style
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Yes, Michelle, it's always your favorite because it's true. Well, we're about to do Fish Out of Agua's guest artist of this week. But first, here's a snippet of a song that she picked as one of her favorites. You know, because sometimes you just got to live your life. Like this song by T.I. featuring Rihanna from 2008. This is special what's handed to all my, all my soldiers over there in Iraq. Everybody right here. What you need to do is be thankful for the life you got, you know what I'm saying? Stop looking at what you ain't got. Start being thankful for what you do got. Let's get it to him, baby girl. Hey. But after all the game I gave away Safe to say I paved the way for you cats to get paid today You'd still be wasting days away now had I never saved the day Consider them my protege How much I think they should pay Instead of being gracious they violate in a major way I never been a hater Still I love them in a crazy way Some say they sold the yay and know they couldn't get work on Labor Day It ain't that black and white It has an area that's shaded gray I'm Westside anyway Even if I left the day and stayed away Some move away to make a way Not move away cause they afraid I brought back to the and all you ever did was take away I pray for patience, but they make me want to melt their face away Like I once made them spray, now I can make them put the K's away Been thugging all my life, can't say I don't deserve to take a break You'd rather see me catch a case and watch my future fade away Welcome to Fish Out of Agua, Daisy Rosario. Thank you for having me. That's so exciting. I know. And it's so amazing that we're able to do this like on the cusp of you leaving New York. Oh my God. I know. Uh, like you, I'm a native New York, New Yorker and I'm leaving for Washington DC and I kind of. And how many days? I leave in six days. Oh my God. Okay. We're doing this interview on Tuesday, (laughs) May 16th. Yes. Um, And I basically have to be in some level of denial to like get through this next week of actually moving so i think it's gonna hit me hard once i'm there but i have these moments on the street here and there where i'll see like a beautiful view or i'll see a place that has a memory for me and i'm like oh my god what am i doing but it's it's super exciting so this is really cool because you'll get to have like your little swan song here for now and talk about your whole trajectory as a performer so daisy tell tell the fish out of agua listeners how we met um, well, this is really exciting because, you know, like I met you because you were one of the first people at the moth that really came up to me and was just very like welcoming and was like, Hey, I've seen you tell a story. Great job. Like, 
you know, are you coming around more? What are you doing? You just were so warm and welcoming. And so we met through the moth. The moth. Um, all points go to the moth. All points the go to the moth. The story slams. And this was right around the cusp of the time when they were just about to blow up. I don't yeah. think they had blown up it yet. It was early 2009. Yeah. Like, it, like they were they, just was blowing like an up. article in the Times. Yeah. It was just It was starting. just uh, the radio show did not yet exist. No. They were still doing like shows like yeah. in Union Hall and stuff. Yes. Yeah, like they were smaller venues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was busy, but it was not sold out the way it is. Yes, yes. And it was, it was the it was the tipping point. Yeah, it, it really it, was. It was the Malcolm Gladwell moment. Exactly. I got in just before yeah. it started to be yeah. a little yeah. intense, and and when you can really forge like some really strong relationships, because that is one of the things that changes as a community gets bigger, right? Um, so. In late 2008, my father died, and at the time, I hadn't been performing a lot. Like, I grew up um, in New York, like I mentioned. I went to NYU for, like, theater, and my focus was solo performance. Like, that was my world, and then I lived in L.A. for three years where I was doing the stand-up comedy thing, among other stuff. That's right. I forgot you were doing stand-up. Yeah. I did stand-up for a while, and I also did a lot of improv, and then I moved back to New York in, like, 2006, and I just really struggled. I was having health problems. And, I knew and you I were in, in your mid-20s then? I was in my mid-20s, and I was having a lot of health problems, but I knew I wasn't feeling well, but I didn't quite understand what my health problems were. I remember when I first met you, you walked with a limp. Yeah, I had a really bad limp all of 2009. I could barely walk, um, and it was at the very end of 2009 that I would find out that I had celiac disease, which is the reason that people eat usually gluten-free. Um, and, you know, if you're not familiar, yes, it can sound just like a diet, but for me, like my whole body, it's an autoimmune disorder, and my whole body was basically attacking itself. Ah, jeez. And I just couldn't focus, I couldn't perform, so I had kind of stepped away from the stage for quite a while. And then in early 2009, with my father having just recently died, I was just feeling very, like, I had stories to tell, you know, I was feeling very inspired, I was, I was like, I have to talk about this stuff. And so, how I went you, to the moth. How did you discover the moth? I had... I had heard of it in passing, and then I think like I heard a story on This American Life again around that time mm. when I was trying to figure out what to do with what I wanted to say. And I was just kind of going like, where can I tell this? Because coming from a stand-up background, I was used to, you know, kind of the way Mike Birbiglia will tell, will do comedy through a story. Like some of that for me was part of my style. It wasn't exactly my style, but that was an aspect of it. But there wasn't that many clear and obvious places to just go like tell a story that required patience on the part of the audience right? right like if it wasn't obviously funny you couldn't do it at a comedy club and so I found my way to the moth and the very first night that I go I like put my name in the hat I get picked right before intermission and I told the story of taking my father off of life support which is a very heavy story yeah. but it ends with a joke and that for me was why I wanted to be able to do something like tell a story at the moth because I can't tell a heavy story like that most places and hope that the audience is still going to be okay with laughing at the end. Right. But I could do it at the moth and I ended up winning that first night that I was there. Oh my God. So I, I won my first time out too. Nice. Oh yes. Oh yeah. snap. Oh snap. Boricua. Boricua. <laughs> We're winning. We're winning. Okay. We got to stop. And, um, <laughs> and so yeah, like I, everybody was really nice. I beat this guy, Jim O'Grady, who is also a reporter at WNYC. And who became your boss like years <laughs> later, right? Well, I worked at the, at the same station. Okay. I mean, not your boss, but you, you worked, you were colleagues working. Yeah, like we were both to, there. Yeah. And he was always like wonderfully supportive. And so like, 
it was just an interesting thing because also with the storytelling scene, meeting people like you or just like Jim, who was very gracious about, you know, losing to me by like a tenth of a point, I could already immediately see the difference between the stand-up scene and the storytelling scene. And that it was, it was warmer, it was more welcoming, it was less competitive. Even though the moth is a competitive format. Yeah, a, a, was, a tenth of a point. Right. Holla. You know, <laughs> there was this understanding that like, I tell the stories of my life, you tell the stories of yours, like we just have different styles and that's natural. Whereas in stand-up, it's much more like, I'm funnier, who's funnier? Whereas like, we just knew like in storytelling, like you tell the stories that you tell and I tell the stories right. that I tell. And you right? can't steal material. Right. Like in stand-up, people will steal jokes all the time. Yeah. And it's like, nobody could steal my story and I exactly. couldn't steal any part of your story. It just, it, I don't, like you could tell a similar theme. Right. Like I could tell a story about my my father dying. Right. But it's not going to be. It's just not going to be the same. And it can't. And, and I'm and not trying to like out funny you right. or out pull heartstrings you right. or anything like that. They just the stories are what they right. are. Right. We're not going to compete. Like whose father's yeah. more dead? Exactly. Whose dad's more dead? Right. Yeah. So like the competitive aspect, while it's there, is just a very different thing. Except for the tenth of the point part. Except for the tenth of the point part. <laughs> and um and I remember seeing you the first time that you and I I really remember having conversation with you was on Cornelia Street outside of the Cornelia Street Cafe. And I remember you had seen me at a moth show and you were like, hey, like, I saw you, like, you were good. Was like, it, what's was your it, name? Was like, it Andy Christie's Liar Show? I think it was probably a liar show. Um, I just remember, like, being outside of that awning and, and, ch and chatting with you and you were like, if you ever need tips or you want somebody to hold your place in line or whatever, you were just so kind and welcome. I was to happy me. to see you. Yeah. You were the, we, we were the only blood around. There was not There was no, there was, <laughs> listen, I, I was the Latina, and by now you know that I got the red hair and the light skin yeah. and the pecas <laughs> and the bad Spanish. Okay, no, the Spanish is improving, but still. And I was Mine just like, Daisy Rosario. I was yeah. like, oh, yeah. oh, prima, somebody, somebody. <laughs> so because like, we were it. We were we the were. people of color. And then it was this guy named Gerard or something right. who disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. He and I are still Facebook friends. Oh, yeah? But that's oh. like it. If yeah. I, you know that's, what I mean? Yeah. If it wasn't for something yeah. like that, and he's, I would have and no he's idea. And he's not doing stories or anything. No. Much, I'm like, not that I'm at the yeah. mop and, I'm but, and anymore. And there are but, a few more people of different backgrounds, yeah. though, right? But well, yes, now, yes. Time, but at the time, we were we it. We were it. We were not, it. Yeah. We were it. Um, And so it was just, it, it was not just like that particular show or that particular night of meeting you, but you were being very warm and welcoming to me at a time where I was like just dipping my toe back into performing in general. Huh. And then later that year, I would find out what my disease was. And then within the next year, all of a sudden I had my clarity back. Because one thing that happens with my disease that people don't realize with celiac is if I eat gluten, my I, I always describe it as like, I get really foggy in the brain, like super forgetful. Like I have to write everything down if I'm going to get through the day. And it's as if I've just been like hit in the head a lot and then just left to wander. Like, wow, I'm that's just crazy. Useless. So imagine trying to tell stories. You can't remember the story. Right. So it was like this whole time where I was just kind of like starting to feel better, starting to understand what was wrong with me, being able to take care of myself and like trying to get back into the world of performing and telling stories and, and doing all these things. And, you know, eventually like within a year, I'm taking a writing workshop, right? And all of these things that had just been always a part of me but that I hadn't been able to actually do I was like finding my way back into and so you were one of those people that I met Aww. then and who was very and I had no idea so who knew I don't know yeah. I was a, coming out of the dark like I'm a water sign I'm a crab must have been my nurturing <laughs> the nurturing part of me <laughs> exactly. oh my god um, and then about a year and a half later you know because by then now we're getting into like the recession mm -hmm. and my professional life was a, a wreck in that I kept getting laid off like a lot of people did. I was feeling more creative and that was great, but things were super lean. 
And, um, you know, I, I looked at some of the people that we had at the Moth, people like Jim O'Grady, who were, who told wonderful, hilarious, brilliant stories about their own lives, but they made their living as journalists. Yes. And then it occurred to me that, you know, the first time that I heard the moth, like heard a story from the moth was on This American Life. And then it occurred to me, like I literally didn't realize this, um, that all of my friends who weren't like comedians or like artsy fartsy types, like I have filmmaker friends, whatever, the rest were all journalists. And I was like, how did I surround myself with all these people and not hmm. realize it? And I just started realizing that I love telling my own stories, but I didn't necessarily want to make a career out of only telling my stories. I wanted to also help people tell their stories. That's great. And so I decided to go to journalism grad school. And from there, I interned at Columbia. I went to NYU. No, I went to NYU for undergrad. Um, I went to uh, the CUNY Graduate School. Oh, the CUNY. That's right. That's right. I know. And and you interviewed me for like one of your projects. Yeah, there's still like a scene project. That was like a like a photo essay. Yeah, you you came to my old apartment. Yeah, yeah. When I lived on Seventeenth Street. It's still there's still a picture of you on display. Oh my god. I was just at the school recently. It's on the second floor. Oh okay. So I went there, and while I was there, I interned at Radio Lab. And after that, I interned at a show called Latino USA. And then maybe about six months after I graduated, I got hired on Latino USA. And that, you know, became my trajectory was I started working in audio journalism. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. And that's what I do. So I'm leaving New York because I just got a job at uh, WAMU, which is the D.C. public radio station. Like WNYC is in New York. WAMU is to D.C. And I'm going to be the managing producer there of a show called The Big Listen. The Big Listen. Which is actually a show that is all about podcasts and, really? and other shows. Like this one? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and um, so it's and it airs on the station there, but it's also a podcast, and, and it airs in some other places, too. And I'm going to come in and work with this really great team there and also be part of a, a very cool larger shift that WAMU is trying to make right now in terms of their content. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. It, it, it's so ironic that, like, radio is making a comeback yeah. in, like, an era of just, like, so much, like – technology and yeah. content yeah. it's like it's going back to what e- i mean you know radio is now on the internet not like on the analog stuff that it was when we, when we were kids but yeah. still it's still radio yeah. people still want to gather around a box because a device is a box right yeah. it's just what, what what what's inside of it so people still want to gather around a box turn on a box and then just listen yeah exactly i mean because i think one thing i often talk about in the world of podcasts you know i I've been working in this arena for a few years now, and now I'm gonna work on a show that's all about podcasts. But one thing I always point out to people is like, do you remember when music itself went digital, right? Like when Mm -hmm. we had Napster and then iTunes and everything. One thing that ends up happening, and I know this happened to me, it happens to a lot of people, is that it's both amazing to have access to all the things you want and then also overwhelming to make the choice sometimes. Like sometimes you just are getting on the subway or getting in the car or trying to cook dinner and you just are like, I don't even know what I want to listen to because there's so many things to listen to. And in those moments, I find myself specifically going back to the regular radio and just being like, just make something good and and I can trust you to like keep me entertained while I'm washing these dishes right. or taking a walk or whatever. Yeah, or I making some sofrito or whatever. Yeah, because yeah. I don't always know exactly what I want to put on in that moment, right? And that's why something like Pandora is popular yeah. for our music is that you're like, well, I like this artist, but... I don't want to just listen to that one album. Then it gives you things that are like that. Right. right? Yeah, if you like ska, you put in like Bad Manners or yeah. The Selector at English Beat. And then you get all the ska. Exactly. All the time. Yeah. And yeah. so that's one of the things that is great about radio is that like in the morning when I wake up, I can turn it on and go, just give me the things I need to know for the day. Or in the evening, if I'm cooking, I can just be like, you know what? There's nothing specific I really want to 
hear, but I want to be entertained and just put it on. And so like, yeah, it's not going to completely disappear. Like it is coming back to itself in a way with also other options, you know? So yeah, kind of the best of both worlds. I know it's, it's very exciting to, yeah. you know, I, I didn't think that I was going to be doing this six months ago. I just got the idea that in my head that I wanted to serialize my book. Yeah. I wanted to serialize Fish Out of Agua. And I was just like, my friends, yeah. Tom Tenney and Rob Pritchard founded Radio Free Brooklyn. They, uh, Rob Pritchard had, um, founded the performance space surf reality oh, yeah. that I, that I was yes, part of in those, active. in those art star days <clears throat> back in the 20th century. But like, <laughs> this is like an extension of that. Yeah. So instead of it being a little room on the second floor of, of a building on the Lower East Side, it's just all over the place. I mean, they right. have a physical plant in Brooklyn where they have a studio in Bushwick where people can go and record. Oh, yeah. But like, you know, every so many people just like, like, I'm doing this now. I'm recording this now. I'm going to go home and, and edit on a Hindenburg. And it's just so accessible. And it's yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. And like, I had no freaking clue how to do a radio show when I first started. <laughs> I bet I still don't. Shh, quiet. I don't want to hear you guys. I don't want to hear I you know, guys. I I, I, I'm, I'm still figuring it out. When you first started still, doing this. I'm still figuring it out. But anyway, it's 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 just amazing. And yeah. I love, I love podcasts. I love listening to, I love listening to the sound of people's voices. Yeah. I mean, it's very intimate. It really yeah. is the most intimate. You know, when I... I, I, when I was first finishing up grad school, I would I was applying for a bunch of jobs, right? And I realized that like a core part of my cover letter that kind of got tweaked but copied and pasted into every version was that, you know, I studied theater. Um, I am a big reader. And I also had kind of studied film but couldn't quite get the financial aid to get enough credits to like get a degree in film, even though I took some classes. And for me, like one of the things I love about radio is that kind of takes from the best parts of all of those things, right? So like in movies, you have the ability to really tell an audience what you want them to focus on, right? You can put, you, you focus on certain images, you keep things you don't want out of the frame, you can put music and emotion and feeling and it create tone. In a book, the, it's, it's more of a relationship between the writer and the reader in that somebody can describe things beautifully, the reader is still the one imagining in their mind and, and kind of creating their own version of what it is that they're reading, which is why a lot of books that become movies don't hold up for us because we already have our version in our minds. Yeah. Right? Um, and then with theater, there's like this immediacy and you're right there with the people and there's like an energy you can pick up on. And in audio, it is so intimate. It's just someone in your ear being, you know, just like talking about something that they care about. Um, they are, but you can add music. You can affect tone a little bit the way they do a movie. You can kind of like tell people like, I want you to focus on this, right? But they're still doing the thing they have to do at books, which is they have to add their own visual elements. Yes. So they're doing some of the work. So the relationship is there. Um, and then you are getting to kind of like know those characters and those people through, you know, the same way that you do when you go see a show or something and you get to like kind of hear their quirks or understand their quirks. And so I love audio. I mean, I love all of the mediums in general. And I think, you know, when you're working in one, the best thing you can do is like respect the strengths of that medium. Mm -hmm. But overall, like, I just think audio really is something that's very, very special. And I'm glad that it's only gotten stronger and hasn't gone yeah, away because yeah. it is something that's very immediate and, and very, very intimate. You're just like somebody is in your, in your ears and they're telling you a story and, and they're telling you so a much. secret, yeah. and it's and it's yes, in intimacy is definitely is definitely it, and it makes me think about how it's exactly the opposite of what happened in film, because mm -hmm. when you had the silent film era before they were able to marry audio with with, with the film, you just had people's 
facial expressions. Right. And then when those actors started talking, some of their voices were not that pleasant. Right. Or it, the voice didn't match to the picture that you had in your head right. of how this person should speak. Mm -hmm. And some so many careers just went... Right. Blah, 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 yeah, blah, like blah, the whole blah, blah, blah. singing in the rain thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just, I love the medium and it was, I don't know, I was really glad to move into it. And also like, I always have to shout out CUNY. Like I got such a wonderful education at that school and really like, I had this like desire, this like burning desire to do this stuff. And they really like taught me how to do it. And I'll tell you one, my, my, my kind of my favorite anecdote about deciding to go to um, journalism grad school, which is one of my best friends in, in, in LA, my comedy writing partner, if you will, my friend Carrie, she had actually been a journalist and I started working with her when she moved back from Paris where she had worked for the International Herald Tribune, which was at the time, that's what it was called. It's basically the international version of the New York Times. And so she moves back to LA and we meet in a writing class and she's like left journalism is trying to do comedy. I'm trying to do comedy. Years later, we're having lunch in New York because I want to tell her about the fact that I want to move into journalism. I'm on my way to meet her for lunch at this place in Chelsea Market, which is always crowded. It's just the worst and it's crowded, but they have good food. And so I'm kind of pushing my way through the crowd and I'm clinging on to this like Malcolm Gladwell book since you mentioned him earlier. Which one? It was Outliers. Oh, Outliers. It was Outliers. I'm actually reading that now. Oh yeah? Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah. And uh, so I'm carrying Outliers, I'm burrowing through the crowd and I like walk into just full on body check this other person and I look up and it's Malcolm Gladwell. And, no, yeah, for real. Like actually, Malcolm. Oh Gladwell. my God. And I had what was for me like it's, this is one of my proudest moments in life. In that I realized it was him, and instead of like creeping away or just like looking shocked, I just looked at him, looked at my book in did my you, hands. Did you show it to him? It, and I yes! went. I just went really enjoying it, and then walked away. Oh. As if nothing had happened. You probably made his day, <laughs> like and then he confused. was just like, "What just?" <laughs> happened yeah i think it just i also have very curly hair you can't see me listeners yeah. but i have very curly hair and it's so curlier like, than mine's <laughs> even i felt like we had like all i really saw in his face was this like him like kind of taking in my hair and then i was like on my way isn't it it's just yeah. there's something about hair in us yeah you know it's just like it's it, it, we have five different words for the texture of the hair oh, yeah five different words for the color of your skin mm -hmm. five different words for the shape of your butt it's like yeah. oh my god latin <laughs> culture so how how much of um being Latina, do you bring to your work and how does it, like, does it affect it at all? Does it guide you? Does it, it enhance yeah. it? Does it detract? Well, it's interesting because I spent about four years working on a show called Latino USA. Yeah, so, that's, that's why I'm, I'm bringing so it up. So in that sense, a ton in that I was able to focus on stories that I felt were overlooked. Like one interesting thing that if you look at the last few years of shows that we did a lot was we tended to, um, sometimes we would do short stories about history. Mm. And it was very easy for us to do that because these were things that didn't get a lot of mainstream coverage the first time or that we would realize that a greater NPR audience wouldn't know. Or these were things that were not taught in the history not books at all, right? when, when we were in school in, this, yeah. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, so in that sense, I got to make it a big focus of my work. Um, Can you give me an example of one of the stories that you helped? Um, yeah. Well, my, my, the thing I'm probably proudest of that I had the most fun doing was I did two hours on the role of Latinos in hip-hop. Oh. And the first hour really focused on um, hip-hop culture back when it was forming in the 70s in the Bronx, right? Mm. So when we talk about hip-hop, like, we'll say the words hip-hop and rap interchangeably. But rap is really, like, for a lot of people who are, like, really into it, like, rap is often considered, like, the musical genre. And, like, hip-hop is, you could say that it's that as well, but hip-hop is also this larger culture that has, you know, what they consider all these different elements of, like, 
um, the actual music, right? And then uh, graffiti, mm-hmm. um, like breakdancing. And the spoken word, right. the b-boy you know stuff. I mean? and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I did an episode that really pointed out, like, look, like, especially when it came to the dance and the graffiti, like some of the biggest names in this were Latino, but on the kind of American mainstream kind of black and white um, like right. dynamic that because, they usually because talk about Because it's, it's only of a black and white. Right, There's exactly. no brown and beige. Yeah. Right, like it, it gets ignored. And I and part of me was like inspired by, I remember I saw like a tweet, th- I saw this after, but to me this was like a good example of part of why I wanted to do this was I saw somebody saying like, oh, look at Lin-Manuel Miranda like uh, appropriating hip-hop culture. And it that was like, is his culture, he's not appropriating. Exactly. Okay, my voice just went up seven octaves. <laughs> but oh. like that's the thing, I was like, if you actually talk to like old school hip-hop people, yeah. if, you know, I've interviewed... And, and these guys would even say that they're not even the first wave, but I've interviewed, like, DMC from on DMC. Like, they, they know. actually, they, they know, and they, like, yeah. want these people to be right. acknowledged more. Like, Chuck D talks about this, yeah. Public Enemy but talks course, about this a lot, too. they're all 50. Right. They're all, like, you know, my right. age. They're all, like, my age or a little bit older or a little bit younger, mm-hmm. so they know. But the people that are coming up don't know the history, and they're exactly. like, oh, blah, 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 blah. But right. I, I remember being in, um, like, a tween. Ugh. In, in, in junior high school, I'm yeah. going to say it, junior high school, like seventh grade, and one of my closest friends lived in the Bronx of the Projects, mm-hmm. which is a few train stops down from where my family was living. And I remember I, I would go there after school. I remember my dad coming to pick me up once, and we're walking through the parking lot, and I remember seeing a skinny, bug-eyed kid um, with a turntable oh, yeah. and like a tray, like a TV tray table, like the thing that you would eat like the Hungry Man oh, dinner yeah, off of yeah. and like all these like extension cords plugged mm-hmm. into a light pole and a bunch of records and a bunch of kids were around him. I didn't see or hear what happened afterwards but this scene is indelibly burned to my mind. And I remember just turning around and my father said, we gotta go home. We gotta right. go, no, stop, <laughs> no, stop. Keep walking, yeah. Michelle. Keep but walking. But like, I there. saw, and you know, I found out later that that grandmaster grew up in those projects. Right. Did I see him? Was he a skinny, bug-eyed kid? Maybe. When he was right. like, I don't know. Exactly. But like, it. So yeah. Yeah, and so you know, and so in the episodes, one of the things I did was I acknowledged that, like, especially as the music itself has progressed, like, yes, we should absolutely acknowledge it as one of like the great American black forms, the same way that we do jazz. But ultimately it doesn't help to just completely erase Latinos Correct. from the story. I yeah. know, especially when a lot of Latinos are black, right? right? Like, and I gave the example in the second episode of Cypress Hill that people would usually describe Cypress Hill and they'd be like, oh, it's like a couple of black guys and that one Mexican dude, but those black guys are all Cuban. Like, yeah. And, and but people don't understand no, that Afro-Latinos even exist. So they don't, yeah. well, me, well, at least a, that's coming yeah. out now, right. finally. Yeah. So for me, that job was a lot of getting to go like, hey, this is complicated and we're going to dig into it. Um, and I think in, in in a certain sense, the other way that it plays into it is just personality-wise. Like, I am a New Yorkian girl. I'm going to yeah. tell you what I think. Exactly. Right? Like, I'm going to be who I am. And professionally, I'm still going to wear my hoops to the office. Like, that is just me. Exactly. I'm not going to change that as long as I'm doing a good job. I don't see why that, I can't be that person. No, and I'm, I'm why, why should you change? Yeah. Why should you change? It, it's like, um, oh, I'm losing my train of thought here. Um, I don't know why I sometimes think about things this way, but I wonder about appropriation. Mm-hmm. You know, like where... And I understand not co-opting someone else's culture and just like taking it and without giving any attribution mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. it. But like, where does that end? 
I mean, does it like I, I as a Latina, I can only do Latin things. Like I can't listen to Led Zeppelin. Right. I can't listen to ska because yeah. that's not my because I'm, I'm not British. Well, I remember I'm, I had a girl say to me once, and and this was a young black woman, and she was and she plays classical music, and I remember her saying to me like. I don't think I don't believe in cultural appropriation because like then I would be appropriated in white culture by doing what you're doing. And I was like, I don't know that I would define it that way in the sense that you were taught in school about classical music. You right. are pursuing something that the world deemed you should learn. That is different than when the world deems that like these things are less than and then other people come from outside and go like, but it's fun to play with it. Right. right? That, that's that's different. Yeah. That's different than girls at Coachella like wearing like like uh, feathers in their hair. Exactly. And, right. Yeah. Because then and when you and actually and pretending do see that Native American yeah. people doing that yeah. or like celebrating your culture in some way, you'll still see people making jokes about them like being alcoholics or something. Right. right? And so for me, I think I think all of these conversations are very important and very complicated. And I wish that we could just like digest the fact that they're complicated and talk about all the shades of gray because I think ultimately one of the main complaints about cultural appropriation or that I see around it when I really read the writers that I respect the most is that the problem isn't that people do it it's that they can just play with it and discard it and if somebody of that culture were to embrace that thing they would be looked down as less than correct and, and they can't discard it because that's who they are no yep 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 right. so that's why it's like yeah when if the if the Kardashians are wearing cornrows, but like women are actually like not allowed to wear that at work or not right. allowed to wear that to school. And, and cornrows, like I remember when I when I was a kid, there was this movie called Ten with this actress oh, named yes. Bald Derek, right. and she had she was a white girl and yeah. she was rocking. And you know, mm -hmm. I remember thinking that she was beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, but like back then it was like what 1979 or something. Right. So like you don't have okay, I was a teenager, <laughs> but like you know, you you didn't have all the baggage on that that you do now mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know but then again you had other shit right like like kill whitey day and kill black and puerto rican right. days in school and getting your hair set on fire and getting stabbed exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. it's it is complicated but it yeah. is i think i think if people really listen to the people who are trying to really express why they feel what they feel the arguments i think are more compelling than we always give them credit for or that you know you can kind of and I'm a big fan of Twitter, but like more than you can express in like a yes. couple of sentences. Yes, yeah. Sometimes you know I think I mean? sometimes I think Twitter like hurts more than it helps, and you know why? Because you can't tell a story in Twitter. Well, people are figuring out how. Yeah. But it's yeah. like literally but, but, as but, the functions but, change, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you used yeah. to have to like people used to have to number anything and everything. I know. Now I can click on one thing and it'll usually show me everything else. Yeah. But until that yeah. happens, but, or until it everybody too easy gets to take it out of context, well, and it's just like anything else. Some people have more skills with yes. storytelling. Some people have more skills with words. Than some people yeah. have more skills with nuance exactly. than other. Right? And you so gotta like, know what works. You for gotta you. know what works for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why stories are so important, mm -hmm. Daisy, because it's it's through stories that people can like see a window into someone else's life and then be like, oh, right, okay. I mean, our stories yeah. really are what reminds us that we are more alike than yeah. we are different. I and the more specific the story, the more we feel that too. Yep. I think a lot of the time people make the mistake of thinking, oh, I've got to broaden this out and make it super general. No. But then there's like nothing to grab onto. Right. We will inherently as human beings kind of start to put what we know or our version on top of what we're hearing so that we can relate to it. And so it's actually better to be more specific. Than yeah, it is to be and, and specific. that's why I think it's really important what you're doing be, and also I guess in a way what I'm trying to do with this mm -hmm. because I'm trying to get out the stories of like what we're doing, yeah. why it matters, and it's stories from people that have been historically or traditionally marginalized, right. dismissed, and discounted. Yeah. And, and our stories matter even more now. Um, let's get, talking about sure. stories, mm -hmm. I think you have a story for us. I do have a story. So as I'm getting ready to move away, I kind of can't help but reflect on my life in New York. So 
this is just uh, kind of like one of my great New York nights, you know? Because, like, especially as the weather changes, summer in New York, uh, it's like its own little holiday, and for me, it's like one of the great nights. So it was 2008, it was early 2008, and I was broke, man. I just, I've been broke until like two years ago, basically. And, um, and it was just, it was gonna be like a Friday night, and it was just beautiful out, and I just had this like urge to do something. And, but like, my boyfriend didn't really want to do anything, none of my friends were available, and I just was like, oh, I wanna go out, I wanna go out. So, there's this episode of Sex in the City, where after a Brad, where after a bad breakup, uh, Carrie is like, I'm just gonna date New York from now on. It's me in New York City, right? Which is like really goofy, uh, but I also do love that show. Um, and and it was like I went out that night, and the only thing I had on my plate was that I was going to this like book launch slash book signing thing, right? Like this woman who is like a feminist writer that I followed online uh, was putting out an actual book, and she was doing like fun little get together or bar for people who follow her site. So I was like, I'm gonna go to that. My hair was supposed to wrap up by seven, so I was like, all right, I'm gonna figure out something to do. I'm on my way there, and I get stopped on the street by this man who asks me both for directions and if I had any recommendations of a good place to get a drink which is like really surprising. Like if you are not a woman, let me express to you that like men do not stop to ask for your opinion on anything ever. Like ever. Like occasionally I will have an old man maybe ask me like is this train coming? But it's only ever like literally senior citizen men who do that. Like otherwise men do not ask women for. Like I have been in New York. I have given so many tourist directions in my life. It's mostly either women women or an entire family together. That's the only Time. So like this man stops me on the street and like very politely asks me for some directions and like a good recommendation of like a good place to get a drink. So I'm just like, oh, well that's pleasant. Like it made me feel good that this person like saw me and thought like she looks like she would know. So I like talk to this guy. I'm only two blocks away from the book event. I get to the book event. It's all about feminism. It's like meet and greet, chatting with people. And I'm telling them, I'm like, a man just asked me my positive opinion. Like, like it's that <laughs> rare that it happens. So like, this has already put me in a good mood. Then I go there and I'm chatting with people and they are all, all the women there are like getting it. They're like, yes, that never happens. Usually men only engage with us on the streets to like kind of say something gross um, or something like that. And so I'm chatting with the women there. I'm having a good time of conversation. I'm a couple of other writers whose work I really enjoy and I get to chat with them and I'm like this is really cool but again it was like happy hour time so it starts to wrap up and the sun hasn't even fully set yet and I'm just like I want to go do something but I can't find anything to do I go and decide to get some food and I'm sitting there eating a taco like looking out the window of this place that I'm eating in Chelsea I like notice that there are just women everywhere like more than is usual it's new york city there are people everywhere but i mean like packs of women like walking in groups of like three to six people at a time everybody's dressed up fancy and it occurs to me in that moment that it is the night of the sex in the city movie coming out the first movie not that second garbage movie oh, yeah, yeah. but the first movie when we hadn't seen it for a while the show had been off for years and i start realizing like oh my god like all these women make plans to hang out they all got babysitters they're all hanging out and i'm like oh i wouldn't get in on this energy and i look up showtimes and the movie is like sold out it is sold out until like 1 a.m showing and i'm just like okay, i'm not gonna do that i walk around for a little bit and i'm like walking around and just catching snippets of women talking to each other and just enjoying it and being like i'm in new york it's great i love my city 
I decided to eventually get on the train. I get on the one train heading uptown because I was living in Harlem at the time. And all of these women are on the train. And as we approach the 66th Street station, I realized like, oh, they're all getting off to go to the movies. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to get off and see if they happen to have any times that are not so tough. I get off the train, follow all these women off the train, and they all just kind of stop short on the platform because they don't know where they're going. And I like look at them and they're not even all together. It's like a group of six and then a group of three and then a group of four and then, you know, like just around. And I like turn to them and I'm like, hey, are you guys looking for the movie theater? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, follow me. So I just like start leading this like parade of like str- like women who don't know each other like to the Lincoln Center Theater. And I get there. All the showtimes are sold out except for like 1 a.m. still. I decide I'm going to do it. I don't care. Buy a ticket. Walk around the block a couple times. Go get some candy at a store nearby because I'm, you know, I'm here. I'm not going to pay all that money for that popcorn. And I go upstairs to like wait in line. I get in line for the movie, like waiting to be seated, you know, and I'm standing behind this older woman. She is like in her late 70s, early 80s. She's adorable. She starts chatting me up right away because I'm just there by myself. She's like, oh, honey, are you here by yourself? Oh, my goodness. Right? You just kind of see the movie because they're like old friends. It's like we know these characters so well. And this woman is like there with her husband. And she's like, my husband came with me. What a sweetie, but I mean, he's not interested. So she's just chatting with me. She offers me a hard candy. Like, it's like every funny stereotype of, like, a sweet older (laughs) lady in New York. And she's like, you want to, you know, it wasn't a Werther's, but it was, like, a hard candy. And I'm chatting with her. And eventually I turn around and I catch a glimpse of the woman behind me. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I get really excited. Because at this point, when I'm living in Harlem, there is, you know how, like, when you commute in public transportation, there are just certain people that you see all the time. You don't know them, but you're like, oh, they must live near me and they're on the same schedule. Well, the woman standing behind me in line is like one of those people for me, except she's this like older, beautiful black woman that I would see all the time who like always just had like the coolest outfits on, was always reading a good book. I always saw her when she was alone and I would see her on the train and I would often think to myself like, I don't know what she does, but like, I want to be like this lady when I'm an older woman like her. I want to like be independent and like embrace my gray hair and my fashion and just like be cool. And I stand... I'm standing there, I turn around, and that is who is behind me in line for this 1 a.m. showing of Sex and the City, the movie. And I'm like, I am like her. We're already doing the same thing. Like, in my head, I'm just, like, so excited. So I go into the movie. Eventually, I watch the movie. First one's much better. Second one, enjoy the movie. Movie ends, and I am, like, one of the first people out of the theater because I'm by myself, and I'm a fast walker. And I get outside, and I look around, and I, like, realize that the train is not running. Like, I've beaten the whole crowd outside, but the train is, like, shut down. And not for regular um, train changes. Like, something has happened, and it's shut down. There's, like, announcements being made. And I'm like, oh, my God, this whole crowd is about to come out. And it's going to be – I'm not going to be able to get a taxi if this crowd comes out. And, if like, the Lincoln Center Theater, you know, where it is, is, like, you don't get a lot of cars coming uptown right there, especially in the middle of the night. Um, So I go running up the street – on the on kind of the downtown roadway so I go running up the street and I like find a taxi and I like pull a proper like yo taxi like right here and I get in the the taxi like two and a half blocks north of the movie theater the guy has to make a u-turn so he ends up driving past the movie theater and he sees this like massive swarm of people standing there because not only is movie lap but the train isn't running so they're all just milling about gathering not sure what to do and I see some of them trying to wave at my cab but it's already taken And he's like, what's that? What's going on? Do you know what's happening? I was like, oh, the train's not running. And I tell him, oh, I saw that the train wasn't running, so I ran up and I hailed you. And he's like, oh, oh, look at you, smart. He's like, you really know how to hail a taxi. And I was like, 
thank you. This is the greatest compliment as a New Yorker that you can. Like, I just mm-hmm. was like, oh, my God, I feel so validated right now. Like, this man is like, <laughs> you know how to hail a taxi from a proper yellow cab taxi driver? I was like, yes, sir. I do know how to hail a taxi because I am a New Yorker. You know what I mean? And I just feel like so proud. And I get home to Harlem and I like walk into my little studio apartment that I'm sharing with my boyfriend at the time. And he's like passed out. And it's quiet and it's chill. And I was probably supposed to be home five hours earlier, but I just like made this whole night happen on my own, you know? And it's one of those things where, you know, we always say, I love New York, but it always it does feel like New York doesn't always love you back. But it was one of those nights where I really felt like New York was loving me as much as I was loving New York. And New York loves you, Daisy. Hug on the air. We're hugging. Listen to the sound of us hugging on the air. (laughs) No, you have to have to figure out how to hail a taxi in um, DC. In DC, I think it's just Lyft. You'll be back. Yeah, or (laughs) Uber. You'll be back, right? I will be. And this was Daisy Rosario. Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Aga. You've you are our longest interview (laughs) ever. Forty minutes. Oh my God! Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to see you. I love that you're doing this. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You heard Wonderful Night by Fat Boy Slim, another of Daisy's picks underneath her story. And it looks like that's our show. So if you kids like what you've heard here or on any other Radio Free Brooklyn show, consider sponsoring us. It's really so easy. All you have to do is go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the green Sponsor This Show button. You can sponsor any Radio Free Brooklyn show, including <clears throat> Fish Out of Agua Michelle Carlo, <clears throat> for as little as $1 per episode. So you eat one less piece of slightly stale dulce de coco candy from your corner bodega, if you still have a corner bodega. Mine closed earlier this year, and I'm still not over it. Well, at least it didn't become another overpriced cake cafe juice joint or ATM. Better look, don't get me started. That rant is for another show. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with this song. From Morningwood in 2006, it's called New York Girls, like me and Daisy, two Brooklyn Boricua girls. And hey, New York City's loss is DC's gain. Bon voyage, Daisy, and see you guys next week.